You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. When we are under pressure with all of the bad circumstances of life, when people outside the church are treating us poorly, we can then feel bad about that, feel the pressure of that, and then turn on who? Each other. We can get after each other and we can start complaining and grumbling with one another. When things don't go right for us, don't go right for our finances, lose a job, it's easy to become anxious and angry and irritated and take that out on the people closest to us. That's when arguing occurred. Pastor Tom speaks today in regards to the second coming of Jesus. When we lose this focus, then bad things can happen. We can start to grumble, taking the pressures we feel out on those closest to us. Does this sound familiar? You know, the Israelites lived under oppression. They didn't complain to their harassers. Instead, they grumbled at each other. Kind of backwards, isn't it? Friends, we have to watch how we handle situations in our lives so that we're not tearing down others. Now, here's Pastor Tom in the book of James chapter 5. As he continues his message, the second coming of Christ inspires Christian endurance. By the unbelieving world, particularly the rich, the uh, famous, the powerful, those who have influence over us in our lives as they did these first century dear and poor believers. They were taken advantage of. Their life was made harder because they were righteous. The same will be, it seems, increasingly true of us. Sometimes in the workplace, you're suffering in the workplace because of unjust rules where, just to put it bluntly, the perverted are given more right and their conscience is valued more than that of the righteous. Sometimes it's in the business world where positions are taken to cater to those who are perverse. Sometimes and increasingly our own current government leaders, which uh, care more, it seems, for protecting the decisions of evil people than the convictions of Christians, even forcing Christians to uh, support abortion or forcing them to support foolish bathroom rules or whatever may come along next. We live in foolish times. Ephesians 5 says, be careful how you walk. Give it a lot of thought because the days are evil. Well, that same cloud of darkness seems to be settling over our country. Our current leaders are throwing off everything godly and speaking up for the perverted in the name of a false love they call tolerance. And in the name of tolerance, righteous people are not tolerated. What hypocrisy they show. Believers who want to do what is right, live a simple life, work hard, bring home a paycheck, worship their God, care for their neighbor, well, they're going to have it harder now. Why? Because government is uh, foolish. But we will have to live in the midst of it. We will have to endure it as various rules get started. I just read something about the mayor of New York wanting to impose these gender rules on all the businesses or find them. And um, here we go, just from one end to another, and it is coming upon those of us who want to take God's Word seriously. Honestly, just want to follow common sense and um, what nature itself teaches. But let's go to this text because I think it's really helpful to understand God's will in the midst of it. In other words, it's not going to be easy. There's not some fairy dust to sprinkle on our situation to make life easy. That's not what God is saying, but he is giving us a strategy to deal with it. Verse 7, therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts 
for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. All right, if this text tells us that we need to endure. That's pretty obvious. And we're supposed to wait for what? The coming of the Lord, right? We have to forbear our trials until he comes. When he comes, he will bring judgment. And it describes Christ's coming as soon. He is about to come. He is at the door and ready to come. And really, this passage to exhort us is built around three imperatives, the main imperatives of the passage. And so that conveys to us these three strategies. As we are commanded what to do in the midst of this, we learn then the wisdom of the Lord, and we can turn those into a strategy as to how to live. What's the first strategy for living in a dark and a foolish society? And the answer is, be patient until the Lord comes. Talked about that last time, verses 7 and 8. We covered that in detail, that glorious coming of the Lord in judgment. We are to put all of our eggs in that basket. We are to put all of our hope to his coming, and we're, we can't really be guaranteed anything in this life, any freedoms, any privileges. No, that will come, and it will come in abundance when he comes. And so we really are to do more than hold the doctrine of the second coming as something we believe in. We're supposed to put all of our hope and expectation there. And if we're not, we're going to get so frustrated, we're going to get so disappointed in life because we're expecting things to emerge in this life that he didn't promise would. And we're taking things that the society has told us we ought to have, and we're making that our standard rather than looking for when Christ comes and he brings his kingdom to earth with all of the blessings. The second strategy and the third we'll cover today. Focus on verse 9 and the second imperative, and that's pretty clear what it says, right? Do not... This is a strategy. Do not complain against one another. Do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. So this is the second imperative of the passage. Don't complain. Oh, that's so easy to say. How many of us will complain by the end of this day? But actually, literally, this term has to do more with grumbling, not so much an outward complaint that we make to someone else, but an inward sigh. Sometimes it's translated as a sigh. When life just is so overwhelming, you're just like, ugh, an ug comes out of you. It's a moan. It doesn't mean so much that you verbalize the complaint as you groan inwardly. Tough circumstances rest on your shoulders. You don't know if you can bear them. You didn't ask for them. And so you let out this sigh. Life is hard, you see. It's kind of like that in Romans 8.23 where the same word is used. It says, we ourselves groan, same word, within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body, the day that we'll be raised from the dead. So in the meantime... And those of you that are getting older know all about this. The body groans, right? You realize this can't be all that it was meant to be. It just doesn't feel great. And so the body groans. And uh, even the Lord Jesus let out a sigh in one of his healings. You know, when he's, all of the people that brought all of the needs to him. And it was overwhelming at times. And in his humanity, he let out a sigh. In the Old Testament, when you find this concept of grumbling and sighing and groaning, it usually had to do where people were under oppression, 
classic example, of course, being the people of Israel in Egypt, and they're under the oppression of the taskmasters, and it says in Exodus 2.23 that the sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage in Egypt, and that obviously caused them to cry out to the Lord. So this is an inward feeling of a weight that is hard to bear. I like what the expositor's commentary does to describe this. It says, what is forbidden is not the loud and bitter denunciation of other people. By the way, that was something we dealt with in other passages where we're judging other people and speaking against them and not controlling our tongue. That's not exactly what this is prohibiting here. But rather the unexpressed feelings of bitterness and the smothering resentment that we may express itself in a groan or a sigh. End quote. Now notice that the grumbling here is not against the Lord. Did you notice? Look at it. It's not against the Lord. It's not even against the rich oppressors. That's what you would expect in this context. Groaning against those rich people who are buying up the land, remember that, and putting people out of business and then employing them and then not paying them and causing hardship for those who are poor. It's not even talking about that. But the grumbling is against who? One another. The church context, one another. And since the negative particle is used there with a the present tense imperative, what that comes to mean is stop grumbling against each other. So this was some kind of an ongoing problem James must have heard about in the churches, and he sends out this prohibition, stop it. But why is James bringing up grumbling against one another in church in the midst of a context that's clearly instruction about how to endure with the oppressive world? Well, it's not too hard to figure out. We kind of know from personal experience that when we are under pressure with all of the bad circumstances of life, when people outside the church are treating us poorly, we can then feel bad about that, feel the pressure of that, and then turn on who? Each other. We can get after each other and we can start complaining and grumbling with one another. When things don't go right for us, don't go right for our finances, lose a job, it's easy to become anxious and angry and irritated and take that out on the people closest to us. That's when arguing occurs. Some of the worst arguments in marriage are over what? The money. So we tend to vent our frustrations on those who are closest to us. We love them, they're part of our team, but boom, we hit them with the stuff. When we're mistreated, we just tend to mistreat other people more. You know, it's like you think you're really godly when everything's going well in life, right? Look at me. I don't argue with anyone. I get along nicely with everybody. I must be a godly person. I must be full of the Holy Spirit of God. They could probably write a book about me. You know, I'm so godly. And then some trials come along, and you're like, ah! And then you realize what was actually there. Lord just wanted you to see that so you could keep working on it. Same with me. This happens in all of our relationships. In marriage, you mentioned that already when you face a difficulty Instead of bickering, you're a team. You're one, really, right? Men, the wife is the body, your body. And so you ought to pull together and say, all right, this is tough, but we're a team, we're a unit, we're going to work on it. This happens in sports. When a team starts losing, you find out what character they have. Are they going to go to the huddle and they're going to start, you know, bickering? Or are they going to pull together and then you find out whether or not they have character or not, right? In the classroom, students tend to be upset with each other when the teacher's really bad and puts too much work on them, too much, and doesn't explain things. And then they start, you know, getting after each other. It's true in the office. A deadline is approaching. People get irritable with one another. So also in the church. Things start going poorly for this family or that family, and this one is kicked out of their job, or this person's suffering this way, and then they don't really have anyone else to gripe at, so they're griping at one another in church. The church can be hit with hard things too. 
and people of immature character rush to complain and point out all of the deficiencies in other people. Rather than taking that moment, hey, things are hard, let's reassure the saints. Let's get in there and let's be strong for their sake. Let's make sure that we're not going to be like the next domino that falls down. We're going to be sturdy. We're going to be that oak tree. We're going to have our faith deep roots, and we're not going to bend too much when the wind blows. We're going to be strong, and we're going to do it for one another. We're going to reassure one another. Instead, they get into grumbling. Grumbling accompanies fault-finding with others and judging them. We already saw that back in chapter 4, verse 11. It said, do not speak against one another. Now it's saying, do not grumble quietly against one another. And then we already covered all the destructive power of the tongue back in chapter 3, an incredible description of how much the tongue can hurt. So also here in this context, as these poor believers were being oppressed and mistreated by the rich and the powerful landowners, it created pressures, sometimes incredible pressures and hardships. And that caused them, squeezed them to murmur against. That's a preposition. It means kata. It means down at or down against the others in the church. It's just unfortunate that we tend to kick the thing that's closest to us. You know, like the proverbial man who comes home from work, bad day, boss has been leaning on him all day. He walks in and there's the dog and who gets kicked? What did the dog do? Nothing. He just was there. And so he gets kicked. That's how it is sometimes with us. We're just there. We know one another and we're irritable and then boom, comes out. It's not right, but we do it. So we actually have two things going on simultaneously as believers. We have the oppression of the world against us, and admittedly, we haven't felt a lot of that in America, but it just seems like it's coming. Some of these foolish laws that are being made, sticking up for things that they should not be sticking up while giving up on things they should be supporting. And then we have one another, and we start bickering with one another. It's like everything can be hard, right? It's kind of like that old double whammy. You get hit from the left, boom. Then you get hit from the right. Hey, you really feel terrible. You guys have heard that old ditty, haven't you? To dwell with the saints below, ah, that will be glory. You've heard it? But to dwell with the saints below, now that's another story. It's just not the same thing down below as it's going to be in heaven where it's all glorious. And grumbling, please notice, is no small matter. It's not a small matter. Grumbling leads to something. What do you think it leads to when people start grumbling with one another? Where do you think that actually goes? It actually goes to disunity. It goes to, instead of people pulling together, things just begin to fracture and split and fall apart. you notice that? Because sometimes you think that your grumbling is not really a big deal, but you don't know what the effects are of the grumbling. You don't see the effect that had on somebody else. So you're in some kind of a ministry, and the ministry's done something, and instead of really helping out, you're grumbling. And you don't know that your, your words, your spirit is actually working to break things apart. You may actually have a good insight about something you want to work better, but the way you're handling it in your spirit is wrong, and it hurts. It's not mature at all. It's not a good example. It tears apart. It breaks apart. It's not a good thing. So it's not a small sin. We're a brotherhood. We're a family, right? And we have to pull together. If we don't pull together, we will fall apart. And so every congregation, I think, is tested by hard things. And part of what we're tested is what is our love like towards one another? Will we really pull together? Or is this talk of love some kind of general love? Or are we really going to be specific and particular about the way we love and particularly when things don't go well? 
Rumbling really is the opposite of patient. Someone who's patient sees what's going wrong but endures it and says, okay, all right, it's hard, but I'm going to get in there and I'm going to work to solve it. I'm going to calm this person down. I'm going to have a solution for this. I'm going to, I'm going to offer myself as a solution here, but I'm not going to join the grumbling. I'm not going to do it. So it's not a minor offense. By the way, I'm tempted to go off on all of the one another commands, but I don't have time. There's a lot of one another commands in the New Testament, are there not? You could probably think of some of them. I think there's over 20 of them when you put them all together, maybe over 30 of them. There's things like, you know, encourage one another, pray for one another, confess your sins to one another, forgive one another, be patient with one another, serve one another. But there's also this one, don't grumble against one another. Evaluate what you are doing in that grumbling. Find out where it is that you grumble. Because chances are that you have, and chances are you've justified the grumbling. Yes, but they did not do a good job. Yes, but they did neglect me. True, we're not a perfect congregation. But is your grumbling justified in the midst of that? No, it's not. I like Hebert's quote he has. James, James's prohibition is motivated by his brotherly concern for their spiritual welfare. He is not unsympathetic toward them amidst their trying circumstances, which tend to make them irritable. But he is concerned about eliminating their tendency to grow sullen and exasperated against one another. We're not to go about grumbling as if we are victims for life. Again, put this exhortation in the context of the Lord's coming, our faith in what he will bring when he comes. It's in the shadow of that time where he's about to come back and he's about to basically give us the inheritance of the entire world. And with that reality about to come upon believers, small things or temporary things bother us and we're about to reign for a thousand years on earth and then beyond into eternity. The grumbling just doesn't make sense in that light, does it? We are triumphant and we're supposed to be those expectant waiters. Christ is coming back. My life has not been completely rewarded. What I'm doing to serve the Lord, I haven't seen all the benefits of it, but it's coming and that's why I keep at it, you see. I smile at the future. I know it's coming. Guy's thrown in jail for Christ and he's in there singing praises. You remember who they were? Paul and Silas. Why? Because they know what's coming. Say, so what kind of idiots are these? Don't they know they're in prison? They just got flogged. No, they know something you don't know. They know Christ is coming in all of his glory. They get to share in that. So I ask you again, do you moan and grumble against the brethren? Not against the circumstances. I understand that. But against the brethren... Maybe you're a leader and you're groaning and grumbling inwardly at other believers. They're hard to shepherd. They're hard to care for. You need to confess that. You need to turn the searchlight on your own heart. And I know I do that with myself. This problem, that problem, not listening, didn't get this thing done. Grumbling starts to come out and it's like, stop that. Just stop it. These are the people of God. Do what you can to serve them. And that's what we as leaders have to do. No, or maybe you're not a leader. Maybe you're grumbling at a leader. Hebrews 13, 17 might be a good thing for you to think on. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. You grumble at leaders, you grumble at leaders and keep doing that, and they start to get weary of what they're doing, and, and then that hurts you because then they don't really want to do it anymore. 
Some just quietly leave the church rather than reconcile. Their grumbling's been going on so long. There's bitterness of heart. How are you doing? They say, fine. But then all of a sudden, they're making plans to leave the church. Why? They haven't told anybody. You know, that's wrong. In all the marking down each time someone didn't do something right in church, this person didn't talk to me right, this person didn't remember this, this person didn't pray for me, this person talked to me wrongly. In all of that, marking down all the times they were not loved, they can't see the hypocrisy of their own selves that they're not loving either. And so they just quietly leave. Because they love? No, because they don't love. Because church is like, who's going to meet their needs, you see? And if they don't, well, I'm done with this cold and selfish church. Except that their heart's colder and more selfish. We just justify this all the time, and it's wrong, brother, and it's wrong. It's so easy to find people in church who are not doing what they should be doing, who show up late, do it last minute, haphazard, who don't care, don't pray, don't remember. It's so easy to find people like that. I mean, we're people, right? We're just average people here, right? We all make mistakes. We're all selfish. We're all more concerned with ourselves than other people. We shouldn't be that way. It's easy to find people like that. If that's going to justify you leaving, then you'll find the same thing in the next church. Because we're not any worse, any better than anywhere else. It's much harder to find people who bear up under suffering, who won't grumble against others even when they think they have the right. If you need incentive not to grumble, we haven't even got to what the passage says about the reason. <laughs> I was kind of like dancing all around it. Here it goes. Notice the next reason. Why should we not grumble? There's an exhortation. It is to avoid judgment. From who? Christ. He's the one standing at the door. The judgment is almost here. The judge is almost here. And so judgment is the negative thing to avoid. Grumbling is something the judge is going to frown on when he arrives. What are you doing grumbling against one another? He's going to say. It's interesting that James began this section with a warning to unbelievers about the coming of the Lord and the judgment he would bring them. Now he warns believers of the judges coming. Why? Well, here's something new for some of you. If you've been in the church for a while and studied your scripture, you know this, but many people don't know this. God, specifically the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom all judgment has been given to him, according to John 5, God is going to judge all people, including believers. Did you know that? You say, no, I didn't know that. No, it's true. 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we, Paul writes, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. What for? What for? So that each man, each person, may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Romans 14.10, we must all stand before the judgment seat of God. No, the believer's judgment is not an eternal judgment. That's all been taken away in the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless his name in the cross of Christ, right? Every sin has been wiped away, right? We're forgiven our debt to God, and it was big. We're forgiven because of the atoning work of Christ upon the cross. There on the cross, he paid for the sins of believers, Romans 8.1 says there is now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what we sing about. That's what we glory in, correct? 
But we still have to have our lives as believers and our service to our master evaluated, that is judged by Christ when we individually, one by one, come up, stand in the Bama seat throne and give an account for how we lived our lives. I don't know about you, we talk about accountability all the time in the church, that is the greatest accountability. Living as a person who recognizes that Jesus is coming again isn't always easy. The opportunities to complain about circumstances are boundless, but we must learn from the Israelites. They caused harm to each other when they grumbled. This sort of thing has no place in the believer's life. The knowledge that Jesus takes care of everything in the end should be enough to stop this bad habit. With sad yet hope-filled hearts, we want to let you know that Pastor Tom Leake, the voice you've been listening to today, has gone home to be with Jesus. Pastor Tom served the Lord faithfully here on earth for 24 years, pastoring thousands and helping to create a network of like-minded churches in the Mid-Atlantic region. He shared the gospel unashamedly, shining light into this dark world. Pastor Tom will be missed, but we rejoice that he is healed and with his Savior. If you would like to learn more about Pastor Tom and his legacy, visit hopebible.org. Now, here's a preview of the next edition of Discover Hope. So far, having patience and not complaining are two ways that Christians can deal with whatever life throws at them. But there's a third element that you won't want to miss hearing from Pastor Tom, so be sure to tune in next time. It's the answer to many questions, like, what do I do now? How do I handle this situation? If you're like me, you want an example, someone who's been in similar shoes, to know what works and what doesn't. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for tuning in for this edition of Discover Hope. You can listen to more messages from this and other books of the Bible by visiting hopebiblechurch.org. And be sure to join us again right here on Discover Hope.